0: Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal,
1: an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation.
0: Professor Karna, thank you so much for joining us, mate. It's been a, a real pleasure to to connect with you over the last couple of weeks. And David and I, and I've certainly been aware of your work for a number of years, you know, being from the UK, I, I always saw your name sort of around on conferences and on the circuit, but we never had the pleasure of meeting. So thank you for joining us today. You've, you've just been too severe in a prof- professorial role. Tell us about what you're up to.
2: Fantastic. Thanks, Jake and David, for inviting me. Um, Yeah, great pleasure. And uh, hopefully, we can have a really good, uh, fun time as well as we can learn some stuff. Um, Yes, Seville. um, Essentially, um, I'm a professor there at the University of Seville for my sins. And I predominantly teach anatomy, actually, on cadaver heads uh, in conjunction with aesthetics. um, And I've been doing that for uh, over 10 years, like I said. And um, what an amazing city. You know what an amazing city and amazing people, great food, great music. I mean, it's pretty much got everything, really. So, I I feel very privileged to be uh, honoured with uh, my position there. And uh, yeah, great. So I teach postgrads, and they're all sort of um, you know uh, doing their masters, and they're really keen to sort of excel in facial aesthetics. So that's what I do. I teach them.
1: And what's the I guess the current situation? We we sort of you know, we're trying to not talk about COVID because it seems to dominate every conversation in the news at the moment and discussions on the street, you inevitably find yourself talking about it all the time. But obviously the UK's um, taken a pretty unique approach and seems to have removed a lot of restriction and trying to get life back to normal. So how's that how's that impacted your yeah, business so, and just yeah, people in general?
2: Yeah, so what we've done in the UK is really smart because what we've done is diverted the conversation about COVID to Boris Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's working really well because no one's really talking about COVID so much. They're talking about Boris Johnson's parties at number (laughs) 10, which is fantastic, you know? What a great distraction. Uh, No, uh, that's uh, (laughs) just fun and games here, really, I should say. But no, on a serious note, um, it was crazy, you know, like with with the whole world. I mean, we all suffered to some extent. And uh, I think what it did is it enabled us to kind of reset and, uh, you know, be innovative, really. And, uh, you know, uh, what do they say? That, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And my word, uh, COVID has, has taught us that. And I think you just learn to live with it. it a, yeah, no, it's business as normal, really, for us. Uh, we're just getting on with it. We're just doing what we can. We're obviously, you know, you're at, you're, you're, you're SOPs are still there and you're being sensible and uh, trying to avoid uh, getting it. As yep. much as possible, but if you do, you do, you do what you need to do. So I'm, I'm pretty much the same as you guys. But I have to say, I admire you guys. You knocked out uh, what's his name, uh, um, Novak, uh, Joe. What's his name? Novak Djokovic. It is Novak Djokovic. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> He's been so much in the news. I've forgotten his damn mate. You mean Novak? But yeah, no, you,
1: Novak's. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly um, yeah well, that, that was did he, amazing today is he being accepted into the french open now
0: okay. uh the, the latest i read was that you know it was the same sort of thing no vax no, no no tennis so i
1: I, I don't know Wow. Yeah. did you see what serbia did to australia oh yeah <laughs> they it's, kicked just... to... <laughs> <laughs> it's all just crazy wow gone a it's kind of a bonkers
0: crazy so bob oh, wow. you know i was sort of reading about you before we got you on and I'm, I think I'm all right in saying you were the first recognized dentist in the world to start, you know, doing facial aesthetics, not just doing it, but actually teaching it and pioneering it. So just tell us your backstory and and I guess, why did you get into it?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, 1996, um, I was on an implant program in Canada. So my background is dentistry, advanced dentistry, surgical dentistry or surgery, that kind of stuff. So implants bone grafting, that kind of stuff. So that was my background. Uh, and then whilst on a, an implant program in Australia, no, sorry, not Australia, in Canada, mm. um, I was fortunate enough to meet the Caruthers team.
0: Ah, and, and um, ourselves for the podcast.
2: Yeah. And then essentially, you know, this was at a time they were just about, you know, getting getting Botox on the map and what have you that they you know, publish some studies and this kind of stuff. And I was just fascinated. <laughs> they told me about this stuff called Botox and said, we, we, we inject this into you know people and make them look better. Mm. And I, I have to tell you, I mean, I had to pause for a minute. I thought, this is crazy. You know, <laughs> yeah. I consider myself a reasonably healthy chap. And I thought, this is nuts. How can you inject a lethal poison in somebody to make them look good? You know one of the things were life-saving reasons, but this was crazy. And then you know 20 odd years later how how things have changed you know yes. so I, I went back to it UK to find out a little bit more about else fascinated. Nobody was really doing it back in the uk 20, there was probably one other GP and that was it. And then um, things just went crazy and I started treating people, um, and then I got asked to teach by Alagan. Mm -hmm. back then and they said look whatever you're doing can you teach doctors you know because this is this is amazing and then things just that's where the dr bob karner training institute was born and then fillers came along um at the same sort of time and then things just went went crazy you know so that was really the birth of uh, my institute my teaching but um yeah it was an interesting time back then
1: yeah. Now I know, I know that, particularly in Australia, and I think this is probably um, pretty standard across the world. Everyone's sort of jostling for position to, you know, put their hand up and say we're the we the group of doctors or practitioners that should be providing mm. cosmetic mm. injectables. And particularly in Australia, um, dentists came under a little bit of scrutiny and people saying, "Well, what business today have cosmetic mm. injectables," which is interesting because when you think about. Mm. Um, what dentists do in terms of their skill set, you know, understanding facial anatomy, you know, you sort of expanded on the fact that, you know, you're teaching <laughs> teaching anatomy on, on cadaver heads. So in terms of your knowledge of the face, the muscles, you know, injecting mm. in small spaces and so on, you're mm. probably, mm. you know, arguably um, more, more qualified or more appropriate to do these mm. treatments than almost any other um, sort of mm. specialty or practitioner in this space. So can you maybe expand on your thoughts on that and, and perhaps why dentists should be injecting and you know a little bit more about your background and, and training and, and sort of how that helps you with your injecting
0: yeah and just to add to yeah. that I mean I think from your perspective Bob you probably think that might be a strange question because in the UK there are millions of dentists doing this but mm-hmm. here in Australia it still seems mm-hmm. a bit of a weird concept mm-hmm. that dentists might do facial aesthetics and they sit in this mm-hmm. sort of funny gray area and I think they do in other countries as well so yeah mm-hmm. if you could just sort of I guess tell us why as a specialty you should yeah. do it. Yeah. I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna level with you. I think I'm partly to blame. <laughs> and I'll let <laughs> me explain. Right. Because when when I started this thing, um it was I never considered myself at the time I'm a dentist, I'm a medic, or what have you. It was just literally I want to get hold of this toxin, I want to understand about how to use this stuff and um develop techniques to to, to optimize aesthetics. And uh and teaching doctors of course initially and then dentists i think what happened because i started this in the uk and this wasn't happening anywhere else in the world um what then happened was other countries started realizing that there's this mad guy teaching mm. doctors and dentists on oh, my word they're teeth doctors what are they you know this is crazy what are they doing outside of the mouth and so australia america other parts of europe all got wind of this and I think what then happened was quite smart by the plastic surgeons and dermatologists they started lobbying to say look we can see a storm coming let's stop let's barricade um ourselves in and uh, um, stop the dentist from coming in. And it's just literally like sexist territorial battles. It was absolutely ridiculous because I've always said, I've always maintained, if you want to excel in facial aesthetics, you better know your anatomy inside out, number one. That's like a default position. So I don't care what badge you got, whether you're a dentist, whether you're a medic, whether you're an because I, I tell everybody in the room, I get, I get a typical room, I'll have a plastic surgeon, I'll have a maxillofascial surgeon, I'll have a dentist, I'll have a GP, um, and even sometimes nurse practitioners, medical nurse practitioners, you know, uh, medical nurse pro- prescribers. I'll say, listen, m- most of you guys, I'm going to tell you now, don't actually understand your anatomy the way you need to. And mm. they look at me as if I'm an alien. I said, let me let me explain why, and then I start going through some concepts, and it's very obvious, very clear, very early on that most people are out of their depth initially. Because as an undergrad, you're not really taught anatomy properly. You're taught anatomy to pass exams. Yeah. You learn mnemonics so that you can just sail through exams. But if somebody stopped you and said, "What's this structure?" and tell me the three dimensions of you know me poking through here right down to bone, and tell me exactly what you might discover on the way down to bone most people wouldn't have a clue right and this is this is the reality so I said I don't care whether you're a dentist and don't give me oh I spent more time on the head and neck rubbish I'm telling you as a dentist because a dentist often do that to try and give them you know flex essentially right but it's all rubbish because as an undergrad you don't really understand anatomy so when you leave and you become a post-grad and you decide to do something like aesthetics, you've got to understand your anatomy inside out so you can apply your skills in the safest possible manner. And that is the number one goal. Uh, And then you've got to develop the hands, you've got to develop the eyes, you've got to understand aesthetics. There's so many balls that you've got to juggle to be really good at aesthetics. So all this territorial battles makes me laugh because I lecture globally, have done for over two decades and most of my audience are, are mixed audiences. And it doesn't matter, you know, who you are, lose the ego, because at the end of the day, you're judged by your results anyway. And if you're producing predictable, safe results every single time, and you're making happy patients, you're doing well. And that's, that's really what you should be focusing on.
0: Yeah, I completely right? agree. And we've showcased so many yeah. different types of injectors on the podcast. And mm-hmm. like you said, I don't care if you're a nurse, dentist, plastic surgeon, or a derm, you can tell me, you know, if you tell me about your art and you can demonstrate your experience and your anatomy and everything, then that's have you won. it doesn't matter what yeah. your title says. So yeah. yeah, we completely agree. We've had, you know, Lee Walker on, we've had um, Dr. Mm-hmm. Zainab, we've had the singing dentist on. So we, we, we've we tried to showcase, mm-hmm. you know, dentists mm-hmm. as well as other. Um,
2: they're, they're all my students, by the way, those guys you just mentioned. They're all my <laughs> delegates. Every single one of them. Fair yeah.
0: enough. The, you are the doctor's <laughs> doctor.
1: That, yeah. That's your title, <laughs> your sort of pseudo title. The, the alumni. Yeah.
0: So Bob, the, the topic of, of today is bruxism and teeth clenching and teeth grinding. So mm. maybe it, it might seem a bit abstract, you know, seeing as we're we've sort of an aesthetic and a, an injectable podcast really, but you know, Injectors all the time get asked to treat masseters. And, you know, mm-hmm. we look at faces, we talk about facial shaping and are oh, your faces mm-hmm. too square? Let's slim those masseters down. And I think it's been a little bit simplistic and actually potentially a bit dangerous for people from the dentistry aspect that we're not speaking holistically about both function and form. Often we're just thinking about form Mm. and projectors. So can you first tell us, you know, how you became Mm. interested in the topic? Obviously Mm. your background is dentistry, but even a lot of dentists, they'll, you know, at best they'll make you a plate to protect your teeth, but that's Mm. kind of as far as it goes. I still think it's a bit of a mystery topic for even, you know, the specialists, which are the
2: dentists. So, Jake, that's really interesting you'd ask me that question because you've definitely been to one of my lectures. Because you'll realise that (laughs) I, you haven't. No, not yet. I'll come. Well, excellent that you've come to the same sort of conclusions because um, this is a hot topic for me. Because whenever I talk about bruxism-related subjects, TMD, and what have you, uh, my often opening line to the audience is, "How many of you inject with toxin?" the muscles, one or more. Uh, and to which I'll get a, a, a typical response, I'll get a sea of hands saying, yeah, I, I inject the uh, mastitis and that kind of stuff. My next question will be, how many of you carry out an in-depth occlusal analysis and look at the TMDs? To which I'll probably get one or two if I'm lucky. Yeah. And I, even those one or two, I'm going to tell you now, those one or two that do put their hand up, Probably aren't doing a a thorough enough job, which I'll explain in a second. And then I say, Well, you guys need to fasten your seatbelts because I'm now going to explain why I've asked those questions. And uh, hopefully, we're going to learn some stuff. Uh, The reason is very simple you cannot divorce the masticatory system, the muscles, all right, from the joints or the teeth. So the whole complex is the masticatory system and they're completely aligned together it's a marriage so one affects the other right so if you have an issue with regard to muscles and you've got spasm invariably you'll have an issue with your occlusion the way the teeth come together which will also mean that the alignment of your joints your tmds will be off so your condylar tracking will be there'll be a discrepancy there all right and long term this will herald a lot of problems. And again, I'll go through this in a bit more detail. So the r- reality is if, you, if you've if you got to play around with one of those aspects, so you're going to start toxing those muscles, you've got to understand the ramifications, the possible ramifications of doing that treatment. And even within the muscles themselves, if you, for example, shut down the muscles, which people seem to love to do, mm. predominantly because they're trying to do facial slimming most of the time, and that's the reality. They're not trying to fix um, bruxism, actually. They're trying to fix, they're trying to slim down faces most of the time. So it's an aesthetic reason why they're doing it, not a functional one. If you do that and you do it uh, a little bit too well, you'll, you'll also then, you'll recruit other muscles, all right, in that masquerade system. And temporalis is a classic example of that. And so is medial pterygoid. Just to give you an example. So what'll end up happening, you could end up with hypertrophy in, in other muscles that you didn't, you know, bargain for. And, and, and that will herald other problems and that will cause other a cascade of problems that will then eventually cause TMD. So you know, you, you basically what I'm saying is don't get involved in this stuff unless you really understand the full picture. Yeah. And 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 when you do understand the full picture, it actually becomes a more, more meaningful treatment. And actually you're able to actually open up your horizons to much bigger better things uh, and that's what i do in my practice i treat all types of tmd uh, some really quite crazy examples of tmd where people are so debilitating they can't even open their jaws jake you've seen on my instagram examples of that doctors themselves that come to me at their wits end because they can't literally open past one centimeter all right because their their joints they're, are just not functioning properly their cartilage the disc is actually anteriorly dislocated and displaced, and that's a serious problem. You can't eat, Jake. Can you imagine? I mean, life's over, life is over.
1: Before we get get too much further on on this, it would be great if you could just, Mm. for all the uh, simpletons like me in the audience that don't understand Mm. exactly what (laughs) bruxism is, because I've heard about clenching and grinding and Mm. and sort of all the effect. I mean, I I have a mouth guard myself because I got told I grind and it was starting to affect um, my gum, my gum health. Um, So I understand a little bit what's involved, but just maybe just break it down for people that maybe aren't medical or just maybe don't understand the nuanced differences between those different definitions.
2: So essentially, bruxism is just a blanket term for what we call parafunction so that's activity that you carry out outside of the norm of normal chewing so it will be a combination of either clenching static clenching or grinding all right you can be a a a static clencher predominantly or you can be somebody who just grinds their teeth predominantly but often it's both okay and there are certain ways that you can uh, identify which camp you're in, all right, uh, on, a, on a closer, more thorough examination. Uh, it affects, you know what, it affects 40 to 50%, if not more, of the population at some point in their life. And it's not just adults. It affects children, affects teenagers, um, and it affects, like I said, anybody, male, female, different part, uh, times of their life, often associated with stress, but that's an easy one. But the interesting thing is it's also uh, – um, linked to certain personality types. So if you're quite highly strong, you're a bit of a go-getter, maybe you got ADHD, that kind of stuff, there's mm. there's links to actually these, <laughs> these, then you may well be somebody who bruxes. All right. Um and there's typical signs for this. You, you can see very easily from the out outside. You can see typically somebody who clenches a lot is effectively bodybuilding their masters and and Often they're temporally, so their their faces will generally be wider and squarer. Okay, both me, males and females. Um, so you're typically, for example, if you look at baseball players, they're always chewing gum. Yeah. But one thing you'll notice with these guys, they've got big square jaws. The same with rugby players, right? You'll see typically because they're gritting their teeth. Because let's be honest, you're going to war. All right. So it's it's an aggressive muscle, and you're clenching, and you are effectively creating hypertrophy in these muscles. Um, I mean the masticade force just give you an idea of the sort of forces that you're putting together on these t- the same teeth. you remember these are the same teeth. There's only so much enamel and dentine can take and, and so much the bone can take, uh, and as well as in, you mentioned your gums, the periodontal ligament that surrounds the actual uh teeth. There's only so much force that they can take before something's going to give. And then all those forces are transmitted to the joints. Yep. And that then heralds a problem, and you get crushing forces on the joint and the cartilage and the blood supply to the cartilage, and that causes pain and problems and, and osteoarthritis potentially. So it's a huge problem. And just to give you an idea of the sort of masticatory forces. So typically, and somebody who doesn't brux will elicit something around about 150 newtons of force on their teeth. If you brux... You can elevate that by 10, 15, maybe even 20 times, wow. uh, that, that sort of figure. So you're talking huge figures on the same teeth. And then what will end up happening is in, if you do end up with TMD, which, are, which is temporomandibular joint dysfunction or temporomandibular disorder, you may know it as, you could end up causing uh, problems in your joints. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that could just be simple myofascial pain. So you get pain in the muscles and uh, uh, pain around the sort of region of your joints. Or it could be also dislocation or displacement of the disc itself. Okay. And also it could be osteoarthritis. It With prolonged TMD, often it ends up that way that you get actually degeneration of the bony surfaces of the condyle and the condylar fossa. So you end up with um, osteophytes and and roughened surfaces which then cause problems later on down the line which affect chewing yeah. and of course give give rise to a lot of pain like I said I can talk for hours on this kind of stuff <laughs> um, I'm sorry if I bored you and give No, no, a no that, and give that's, that's
0: a good summary uh, am I right in saying normally our mm. teeth never touch so our normal posture is you know there's a gap and it's only when we chew that the teeth yeah. connect
2: so there are two reasons why yeah there's only two reasons why your teeth come together okay either to eat or swallow because when you swallow you actually you do go into occlusion but a light occlusion it's not a heavy occlusion yeah so you you try swallowing with your teeth apart you can't you can do it <laughs> but it's not very effective put your teeth together it's a lot easier to swallow so generally you do put your teeth lightly together when you swallow yeah so uh, so and and so when you're asleep very rare that your teeth will be together for for any period of time unless you're carrying out nocturnal grinding or clenching which of course is as we know a great time for people who are bruxes to carry out their activity um but it's not the only time they do do it during the day too but often they do it during the night which they wake up with uh, aching of their muscles and joints and then it's just the cycle repeats. Yeah, yeah?
0: Why is it that grinding is sort of stereotypically at night, whereas obviously clenching tends to be, you know, when you're awake and and people tend to be aware that they're clenching, they know that they're clenchers, but most people who grind or or many don't know that they grind until, you know, their partner kicks them and says, well, (laughs)
2: the dentist tells them." honestly. It's not as hard. Yeah. It's not as hard as fast as that. And I, I, um, you know, it's, uh, a little annoying when I hear this kind of stuff that you know people are segmented, Oh, you only do it in the nighttime. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely untrue. People if you go to the gym, I guarantee if you're lifting heavy weights, you will clench your teeth. Yeah, okay. Period. All right. In fact, it's been shown that actually your best lifts are when your teeth are actually at maximal biting force. Yeah. All right. So if you're if you're if you're going for a a, a one rep max, all right, your teeth are not going to be apart. They're going to be literally you'll be clenching for, for your dear life. All right. And, and that therefore means if you do it enough, you do a lot of resistance training or you're doing, you know, sort of any sort of aggressive sports, you will clench more often than not. And so, so therefore you'll, you'll potentially uh, cause hypertrophy of a lot of your muscles. So you do do it during the day, and you do it during the night when you're stressed. When people are stressed, they're having bad dreams, and you know they, they will often, you know, uh, exhibit this with, with um, clenching and grinding. And the the grind often happens because there it becomes a, a habit, right? And people get there's many theories as to why people grind in the first race. Some people say it's because their their bike doesn't fit correctly together, so it's like your brain trying to work out the best fit. Mm-hmm. And so it's grinding the occlusion in. There's theories around this. I'm not so sure that's 100% correct. Um, I think there's there's a lot to this that's been linked also to drug abuse. So people that are long-term drug abusers also tend to grind and clench a lot more than non-drug users. And like I said, there's personality traits, there's anxiety traits, there's you know, bereavements, exam pressure, work pressure, breakups, you know, life COVID, throws us all pandemics kind of stresses, right? <laughs> yeah. Pandemics, yep. But actually, it's funny you should say that because we had a spike after the COVID lockdown. Uh, we had a huge spike, about 100% increase in people coming to have um, uh, treatment for bruxism. Yeah. So, you know, we saw that. Anecdotally, I can tell you now that this did this, 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 this transpire into actual treatments. So there, there's definitely something going on there.
1: Yeah. yeah so other than people that can self-identify that they've got an issue you know they're conscious they're doing it during mm. the day as jack alluded to many people like i didn't know that i did it at night until my dentist said mm. hey you're uh you mm. know it looks like this is what you're doing so what are you sort of what are the indications that you're looking for when you've got uh, a patient on your treatment bed you know in terms of you know yeah. cracks or fissures in the teeth and you know gum recession and so, on. so do you want to take us through what these indications are
2: yeah no problem so So I break everything down so that I do, for example, an extra oral examination. So that's outside of the oral cavity initially. So I look at the muscles. I look at the joints. I palpate all of the masticating muscles. So the masters, the temporaries, the pterygoids. All right. I also look at the neck muscles, such as trapezius, ascending trapezius, longus capitis, occipitalis. Uh, These are often involved also in heavy clenches. Typically clenches you'll find when you clench, you seize up. So what happens is your neck and your upper back will often be involved in this. So it's not just what you'd imagine, not just the masticatory muscles, the traditional masticatory muscles. So I do a full examination of those muscles, all right, to understand where where the muscles are tender. I then look at the joints themselves. I palpate the joints in several places and then i look at maximum opening because that tells me a lot of things because your maximum opening uh, for most people should be at least four centimeters all right you, to be able to function properly you need at least four centimeters you guys i can tell you now you're going to hover between five and six Let's if you it. haven't Let's got a problem now. do it, do oh, it now i'll tell you straight away
1: how many fingers can i get in my mouth <laughs> <laughs> I'm a three-finger guy, but I've got my whole hand. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, but you've got big fingers. <laughs> so you are stick if you if you oh, open your mouth is, up.
0: It's definitely more than four centimeters. So definitely. I can get have, three yeah. fingers. Yeah. yeah. Three so you, fingers. Yeah.
2: So if you if you can get three of your own fingers, you're you're over four centimetres, no matter yeah. how thin your fingers are. So you guys, looking at your build and size, you're gonna be at least five to six centimetres, which is brilliant. That mm-hmm. tells me your joints are functioning fairly well and your discs cannot and I must repeat, cannot be displaced, okay? Um, you are under three centimetres. Good sign your discs are not functioning correctly. It, and by the way, you carry out a differential diagnosis so for other, other reasons, for trismus, of course. But if you, if you eliminate those uh, uh, and you take scans, that's the other thing I do is I take uh, 2D scans initially and then 3D if I need to. And I can have a look at the joint space I look at the joint space and I look at the cartilage itself. But if you're under three, uh, there's a good chance that you may find that your discs is discs are um, displaced uh, anteriorly. All right,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I'll explain why that is. And then if you are below one and a half centimeters, that's an absolute big red flag, huge red flag that you you. If you're less than one and a half centimeters, your discs are actually. Um, permanently displaced all right so they're not actually moving back into position okay so we we call it reducing or non-reducing uh discs so but to keep it simple if you it's think of it as um you know those little rubber stops you get to to open a door or yep. to keep a door open mm-hmm. right just think of it like that so that rubber stop for argument's sake could be your cartilage and it's and it's permanently jamming the um, uh, uh, mechanism. So you can't, it can't function properly. So yeah. think of it that way. And, and that's a real problem. So part of what I do is actually get that disc back into the right position because mm. you're not going anywhere unless that disc goes back into position and then reset the system, get the muscles de-spasmed and then train the bite to work in the right way. And then often I have to get that bite realigned correctly so that i've got a proper bite a, a, a comfortable bite and a more predictable bite position the yep. so-called occlusion so there's a number of facets to this that need to be identified but i have a like i said to go back to your original question so once i've done the extra uh, examination i'll do a thorough intro examination that's where that's where really uh, a lot of these features can be picked up so you mentioned some of them uh, fissures, um, fractures in the teeth uh, vertical fractures often are good signs or even cra- enamel crazing which is a good good indication that something's going on. little flex miss, um, missing at the tops of the teeth so if you get these little divots that's a classic sign that there's flexion of the teeth. We call it abfraction yeah. where the teeth are flexing because certain teeth do not like lateral flexion. And they're only there because the canines have let them down. The canine teeth are the guiding teeth. They should be the guiding teeth going side to side. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so no other teeth should be in that pathway. What happens is, as you carry out the grinding, you grind down those canines and then you bring into play other teeth, Mm -hmm. such as the premolars and the molars. And they don't like lateral flexion. So, what then happens is you get little indentations. At the top of the teeth, because basically the enamel just pings off. Yeah, just pings off because it's very weak on those teeth. All right, whereas on canines, they're designed. They're like I I, I often call them like royal oaks. You know, they're big oak trees, big long roots, biggest roots in the in the mouth. They're designed to take that hammering. So when they give up the ghost. Premolars and molars become uh, in, in, in part of that play, and we call them interferences. And uh, what I look for is those interferences. I, I document every single interference. Uh, and, I, and again, I can go into a lot more detail. they sort of non-working, working interferences and what have you. And then I also look at what's called slides. So when the teeth come together, what that often happens in people who grind and clench and their occlusion is not optimum, as their teeth are coming together, there's a deflection. Mm. Right at that last minute, there's a deflection either horizontally or it could be vertically, right? And when that happens, that discrepancy is translated back to those joints. Just think of it this way. It's a bit like a train going down a, a, on a, run, a on, the, on those rails, and there's like a, a log. Somebody's put a log on the, on the rail. The train will go p- past that log, and probably one of the wheels might just come off slightly yeah. but it's still vaguely on that on that track you know what I'm so the train's still going but it's not not now in the optimum position yeah and that's pretty much what's happening with these joints they're functioning in a way that's not right so in terms of the the train analogy so the train can function it can carry on going to, to a certain point until such point that so much of the train is off those rails right yeah. and and in terms of the masticatory system, people have what's called an adaptive capacity. So you can be pulled around to such an extent, but your body can deal with it, can cope. The time you can't cope with it was when it becomes just too much for you. And that can actually happen when times of stress, for example, and when your body's at a low, You, you th- this threshold then changes. So you, this this problem, this stimulus Jumps outside of the adaptive capacity, it means your body just can no longer deal with the problem. And that's when you, your patients will often pitch up in pain, inability to chew properly, and then they need treatment. But so what I'm looking for is signs and symptoms of obvious function. Other things, for example, to look out for are inside of the cheeks, you get what's called linear alba. That's like keratosis of the inner aspect of the teeth. That's a classic clencher. Okay, so you get this little scalloped scallop white line. Um, bony extostosis, thats basically overgrowth of bone in the mandible, lingually, palatally, or buccally yeah. at the top. You'll often find about this
0: in, the, in our last podcast, David's got something in his lingual frenulum. just yeah, at the t- bottom of his tongue. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tori, yeah,
2: tori—they're called yep. mandibular tori, yep. lingual tori—and that. The, uh, and essentially, what's happening there is as you are. You know, when we talked about the masticatory forces being elevated, maybe mm. 10, 15, 20 times the norm, what's happening is you get mandibular flexion, mm. right? So that 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 mandible is flexing around the sutures, okay? So the midline. So yeah. what then happens, that's why you get it palatally, in the, in the palatal uh, suture. Uh, essentially, what then happens is the, the, the body works out very clever. It says, well, I'm under a lot of stress. Let's lay down more bone. Yeah, Let's beef this bone up. And that's why you get this thing. So if somebody with lingual tora and palatal tora, often they've been doing this for quite a while. You don't just grow these things overnight because this is overgrowth of bone. So you've probably been doing this as a kid, teenager, and, then, and it catches up with you later on in life. So I look for all of these things. I look for breakages, like I said. I look for obvious signs of interferences. I document absolutely everything. I look at maximum opening, and then I look for deviations on opening right? So I want to see if the the condyles are drifting off to the left or the right. I look for clicking and locking. All of these things have got to be documented. And then it becomes really simple. My my job becomes really simple. In terms of treatment, I just need to decide what do I need to switch off in terms of which muscles are in spasm because I need to target those muscles. And the best thing for that, quite frankly, is toxin. If you know how to administer the toxin correctly to target the muscles, that is one of the best things you'll ever do. Yeah. all right because you know that's a given it's going to work that's what toxin does best all right that's what it was developed for it wasn't developed for aesthetics initially it was developed for things like uh spasm. all right so it works beautifully well for spastic muscle but that's not your be all and end all because you've got to then get to the underlying etiology of the problem and that this is where a lot of people who are just jabbing these muscles they stop they, they start a journey but then they stop they don't actually look the long-term cure for these patients and that's what you need to be doing you need to get to the underlying etiology so then i'm thinking okay i've got to try and optimize the bike position i've got to remove these interferences somehow the underlying etiology i that log that somebody conveniently put on the train tracks has got to be removed yeah that's the interference i've got to get rid of it otherwise as soon as that toxin wears off Patients' background to the same problems, right? So, I need to therefore, in my sequence of treatment, ability to fix the occlusion. And if I fix the occlusion, here's the magic if the teeth come together in the right position, guess what? The joints are going to be beautifully in the right position. Yeah. It's very simple because this is there, it's not a mobile situation in that term. It's not like you can move the teeth independently of the, of the fixed condyles. So, everything moves together. So, if I get the teeth in the position, I'm automatically going to get the joints in position and and vice versa, by the way. So that's the sort of, in general terms, um, sorry if I may, no, may have not no, made myself say, as clear, yeah. I'm trying to fix the whole thing together from a long-term perspective.
0: And I guess this sort of spins around to the original reason we got you on the podcast. Do you think that anyone apart from dentists should be doing this? Because, you know, like you've said very clearly mm. and and really in an amazing detail, most mm. injectors are not even going to know about these concepts of intraoral no. examination, let alone the subtleties and have the, the equipment to look and image, etc. So,
2: do you think? Okay, so yeah, that's yeah, a great. They should be question. touching it at all. Yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna also lift the lid on something else. The dentists out there, hopefully, will understand this. And I say this to dentists: I say, unfortunately a lot of dentists out there don't actually understand the occlusion properly mm. okay so general dentists generally who don't have these to look at the occlusion wouldn't even themselves know how to even begin to fix these things because it's a it's a relatively complex situation to do properly all right so it's not sufficient to say only dentists should be doing this i would say it, you certainly at some point in that treatment you've got to employ a dentist who understands occlusion Yeah. All right. So I'm quite happy, for example, for it to be a tag team approach, right? I don't have a problem with that. All right. I'm not saying, right, I'm the only guy who can fix this. This people who can, you can have a multi-team approach to this. So for example, if you're not ever going to touch the occlusion, you can certainly work on the masticatorial muscles and deal with that with the toxin, but then you've got to pass that over to somebody who can fix the occlusion. And so what I teach the non-dentists non-occlusionists is how to identify very easy signs and it's so simple to identify these signs everyone can look in the mouth and look for different signs once you once you have a little checklist and then you know straight away there's problems here yeah uh, pass it on to a dentist who can fix that problem long term right so that's in an ideal situation that's what should be happening but what do dentists do around the world even in my country they give them a soft splint Okay, take an impression of the teeth and give them a soft, chewy little spin. Well, you might as well chuck that in the bin, okay? It's the biggest load of rubbish out there. Uh, David, I, I, I'm presuming you got one of these soft, chewy things. I do, they things, weren't I mean, cheap either. And it's soft. <laughs> uh, uh It's It's shameless, but let me tell you something. They'll probably make you chew even more. Right. right. That's why I, I always
0: thought. You're putting something between your teeth yeah, to basically act yeah. like mm. chewing gum all night. Mm. It doesn't make sense to me.
2: <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense at all. If you're going to have a chewy one, i tell you what, if you're going to have a chewy one, cut off the back bits because then you're only chewing at the front because the masticatory forces can only achieve maximum potential when your molars and premolars are in contact. Mm. So if you take the premolars and molars out of contact, you can only bite on the front teeth at least you're reducing the masticade reload, right? Mm-hmm. You can do this. For example, you could put a pen um, between your front uh, uh, and teeth try and try and break that pen, a plastic BIC, say a BIC biro. Try and break it. Good luck. Put it between your molars and the lightest little crush, you'll break it. Yeah. So the forces are quite, uh, uh, quite a bit stronger, it's about four to five times stronger at the back because you're nearer the fulcrum. Think of it like, um, you know, a nutcracker.
3: Yeah. You're
2: going to break a nut. You put it nearer the actual fulcrum and you'll break that nut. You know, yeah. it's like scissors. If you want to cut something, you don't cut it at the end, do you? You cut it nearer the, the, um, join, uh, yeah. the, 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 the joint. So it's, it's very similar sort of concept. So those soft, chewy things should be banned. Unfortunately, they, they're they in our system. It's got to be hard. Always. It's yeah. always got to be hard. And, I've created my own designer splint because I got sick and tired of people giving me these ridiculous splints. And it has all of the features that really you need for uh, clenchers and, and and grinders, all right? You need to have – it needs to be completely free of the uh, posterior occlusion. It needs to be guided. It needs to guide, sorry, the occlusion so that you only get canine guidance. So you only get um, the canines in guidance, like r- little ramps on the actual splint. Mm-hmm. And protrusion should also mean that there's no occlusion at the back. So in other words, when that splints in, there should be zero interferences. Okay, Because once you remove the interferences, the muscles can relax. Once the muscles can relax, the condyles can be seated in a nice, relaxed position, which is where they want to be. That's home for them. And if the condyles are in the right position, guess what? the disc will automatically want to go back into the right position. So yeah. what you're doing is just putting things back to where they belong
3: mm-hmm. and,
2: and helping the body heal, all right? Yeah. The problem comes when those discs are actually displaced. That's a different type of problem because then you've got to get the discs back into position. So then you've got to do additional work to try and get them back. And you may be aware that uh, often in those sort of situations, I also do intra-articular injections with PRP and HX. Hmm. All right, to flood the area with lubricant and regenerative potential to get the get the joint to heal. Okay, to get some angiogenesis, get some um, the blood supply in there, uh, as well as lubricate the the uh, joint surfaces, and then for, in co- combination with the toxin and the splint, get those uh, joints in to, to to function in the right way.
1: About a hundred questions, so <laughs> I'm just—I can sense about a thousand injectors just removing masseter treatments from their website <laughs> as we speak.
0: Oh. Well, you know, that's partly what I want to do is I want, I want injectors to think about what they're doing, including myself, because mm. you know I do treat masseters, but mm. you know, I, I do have a bit of a good relationship with my dentist, and you know, we've tried to think about this logically, and and yep. I prefer—I actually prefer them to see their dentist first to you yeah. know most qualify. Yes, there there's evidence of teeth grinding. You know, I, I don't think it should just be me asking, Hey, do you grind? Or, or or do you mm. wake up with a bit of pain? That's I don't think that's good enough. I think there needs to be, you know, evidence if you like on the teeth. Um and then, you know, if the dentist says, mm. Yes, I think toxin has a role but I don't do it, then like you said, yeah. I think the injector's got a place. But i think they should just be doing it the right way around so you know for those people listening thinking shit i've i've been doing the wrong thing what 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 can they do in their injecting rooms to just you know what questions should they be asking and maybe what should they ask their you know how do they de- develop the relationship with the dentist what what should they be saying to the dentist Well,
1: and, and also how do they identify a dentist that actually knows how mm. to treat this probably you were saying um bob that um mm. many dentists don't really completely understand this at, at the level no. of, of depth that, that you're saying was required so i guess to add on to jake's question identifying someone that's qualified to actually treat this properly or mm. give the right advice these,
2: these these are great questions and i love it because these are real questions right um so let's answer the first bit how does a non-dentist non-occlusionist uh injector identify that there may be a problem right First and foremost, um, yeah, by all means, ask the patient. Uh, are you? Uh, have you been told that you're a grinder or a clencher? Uh, there are a lot of people who have been told, oh, yeah, my dentist tells me all the time, he made me this soft, chewy thing.
0: <laughs> all right? That's, that's so that probably 50% of the time because it's on my consent form. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. All right? So that's a good sign. <laughs> because they've been put, Somebody somewhere has sold them a grinder, clencher, a tick. All right? Um, at least there's been an attempt to try and do something about it. If nothing else, to try and protect maybe porcelain or something like that. But the other thing that you can do above and beyond that is actually try and identify what kind of uh, bruxis they are. And that'll be very easy to spot. So I'll give you an example. A grinder will have worn teeth generally, unless they're early on in their grinding life. Okay. But the, generally, you would see canine tips flattened. Mm-hmm. Okay. They will have shortened. Clinical heights of their teeth. So, in other words, their incisor teeth will generally be flat, which they're not supposed to be. So, they'll be just imagine someone's taken a nail file and actually flatten the table. Very obvious to see. Yeah. All right, and look at the lowers as well. Don't just look at the others. Look at the lowers, and if you can see the dentine through the incisal um, tips. That's a classic sign, particularly when they're only twenty-five years of age. If they're eighty-five, you could you could say, well, they've had a good life, right? You expect to have wear and tear to a degree, but even then, you know, it's not—it shouldn't be to that point where you can actually, you know, you got exposed denting. So that's a classic sign, and anyone can do that. You can do that when in seconds. Um, Look at those uh, little affraction lesions. So look at the premolars. That's a classic sign of clenching, okay? Uh, sorry, gr- grinding. So look at the premolars and look and see if there's little cavities. they will be non-carious. There'll be non-decayed cavities, all right? And they're often quite shiny because you get a little bit of chemical erosion as well afterwards, after the fact. So they're pretty easy to spot. Um, the other aspects, like I said, linear alba. Keratosis in the inner cheeks, very easy to spot, tori, you know, look at these things, look at deviation on opening. You know, it's just not right. If I said to you, Jake, show, you know, go like this with your knee, right? And if it clicks out of place, you'd say, well, that's a bit, that's not right. Yeah. All right. Well, why is it right for your joint to just swing off to the left or the right? And with a bit of common sense will tell you, you do that long enough, you're gonna get wear and tear. It's like a car, you're gonna yeah. wear down the tires on one side more than the other. It, it's it's a, it's an accident waiting to happen and so if you're a dentist and you're allowing that to carry on quite frankly to me that's supervised neglect all right and maybe you just didn't know to do something about it because guess what the patient wasn't in pain because they were within their adaptive capacity well when has that ever been a reason for you not to intervene just because somebody's not in pain never use pain as a reliable uh, factor as to Intervention for treatment. That should never be that. That should not be that's the last thing you want happening. So I get this, you see, I get people who are suicidal. Go on my Instagram, They're, you know, people who are absolutely suicidal because they've been neglected, left to get to that point. And it's almost like a massive challenge to bring them back to norm. So I'm saying to you, intervene early. You can do some wonderful things very early on, if if you know, and, and, and then a non-injector, by all means de the muscles, particularly if they're, it's affecting their aesthetics, especially as a woman. No woman really wants to go around with a you know, a big jawline like this, mm. where the, the inferior, you know, the bigonial distance is wider than the rest of her face. Nobody wants that. Guys might like it, actually. It quite suits you. I see there, Jake, you're fashioning that pretty well. Yourself, no, that's maybe. a
0: lot of filler. My <laughs> master's actually pretty cramped. It's all filler. Yes. <laughs> Don't believe in This is term. all VOLUX.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but you know you know so so you know th- there's reasons why you should be doing it. so as a non-injector you should be looking at these signs and then just to answer the second part of your question which i think is a great one how do you identify the right person to do something about the occlusion well there's certain things you can ask that dentist all right just say to them use buzzwords like say can i just check that you uh treat occlusion you can start with that one and they will say, "No." All right. And say, do you, uh, in, as part of your treatment, do you look to remove interferences, occlusal interferences? Just use those words. Now, if that dentist doesn't know what you're talking about, choose another dentist. All right. If the dentist knows exactly what you're doing and with confidence says, yeah, we do this, this, and this, we do occlusal collaboration, this kind of stuff, you've got the right place. Brilliant. It's that simple. It's a bit like going to a and say, do you do you, do you, do you um, administer hormones for your patient? You know, you either do it or you don't. You can't sort of play at this kind of stuff, yeah. all right? So it's 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 that simple. And and maybe they've got it on their website that we deal with occlusal disorders and what have you. So that's the person you need to be looking for because they will do something about the occlusion that you aren't able to fix. And so it may even just be moving their teeth orthodontically, all right. So there's lots of ways that I didn't get into, but obviously I'm conscious of the time. But there's lots of things that you would do to get those teeth to fit properly. Okay. Yeah.
0: Now this is a podcast, of people—it's not very visual. But can you just explain mm. the the main masticatory muscles? And obviously everyone knows the masseter, but you know where is it? You know how deep is it, and where does it attach? And and maybe the other sort of um, accessory um, muscles. Yeah. Muscles. Well, yeah.
2: So, the the masters themselves, so if you check the masters, that's actually two muscles, okay? You've got an anterior portion, right, which is more superficial, and then you've got the posterior tissue, uh, uh, master. So, if if you look here on me, that's the anterior band of master, as it were, and that's the posterior band just underneath. This one, like, yeah, this lies underneath the parotid gland, this one, okay? Mm -hmm. And this one, lies just underneath the subcutaneous fat. Okay? Um, one of the deeper muscles, it's not the deepest muscle on the face, obviously, but uh, there's other muscles that are a lot deeper, for example, the buccinator. But it's relatively deep and just beyond the master is, of course, periosteum and bone. All right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, then, of course, you have temporalis, which is a huge muscle, absolutely huge, occupies the whole of the side of someone's head. Okay? But, you therefore have the anterior portion, and the posterior portion, and for argument's sake, when it comes to injecting, uh, most of the time you can you can do a good enough job by just identifying the anterior part of the temporalis because that's the part that actually inserts into the what's called the coronoid process. I wish I had a skull with me, actually, I could actually show you. But the coronoid process, if you imagine. Sorry, I'm going to do this. That's the condyle. That's the coronoid process. The temporalis inserts into that coronoid process yanks it up and it elevates the mandible. So it brings the teeth together alongside, yep. uh, works with the masters to, as an elevatory muscles. All right. So they bring the teeth into occlusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course, you've got the accessory muscles such as the lateral pterygoids. You've got the lateral pterygoid, which is really two main muscle bulks. You've got the outer head and the inner head. Uh, and uh, the outer head actually uh, inserts into the condyle. And the inner head inserts into the disc that we were talking to, to about in the actual TMD.
0: And for, the, so what, for those people who might hmm. not have even heard of those muscles, they're basically from yeah. the skull base to the inside of the the, the mandible. Correct. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So they, they, there's little there's there's little plates inside the mouth called the lateral pterygoid plates, and what they do is they that's the insertion uh, sorry the origin of the muscle, and they insert like I said into the condyle and the disc itself of the TMD. And the function of these muscles is opening the mouth, okay? lateral pterygoid pretty much works alone in in opening the mouth. Uh, The medial pterygoid, which is on the inner aspect of the body of the mandible here. So the way to look at medial pterygoid is like um, the master's little brother Mm -hmm. on the inner aspect of the body of the mandible. And it's an interesting muscle because there's actually two, two heads to that too. Because what that does is actually helps bring, in a light way, bring the teeth together, and and it's actually the final positioning of the teeth, actually. So if you imagine the masticators and the temporalis bring the teeth together and the final little jiggle is done by the pterygoid muscle. And and also pterygoid is involved in what we call protrusion. That's where you bring your, your teeth forward edge yeah. to edge and beyond. That is your uh, pterygoid mm-hmm. muscles, all right? And so these these are the chief main muscles of mastication. But like I said to you, there are other muscles that are, play a part when it comes to the, the, the masticatory problems, such as, like I said, the trapezius and the neck muscles, and even platysma and sternocleidomastoid. These all often get involved in this uh, process.
1: Right. I know Jake's going to ask you all about the technicalities of how you inject it and dosage and needles and all that sort of stuff. But Before we get on to that, I guess maybe non like a less invasive is the word I'm looking for things like massage. I mean, I get a therapeutic, mm. I get a remedial massage everywhere. I know Jake does as well. You know, those trapezius muscles, you know, I've had mm. people occasionally they'll put their fingers in your mouth and release muscles mm. in there. Is there any mm. benefit to that at all? Or are we just wasting our time with those sorts of treatment protocols or sort of practices?
2: If you've got mild problems, they will have, uh, you know, they, they'll have a relief of su- of sorts, but it will be quite temporary. That's the problem, right. because, like I said to you before, unless you get to the underlying etiology, all you're doing is delaying the inevitable. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of time before you know uh, you'll end up with a spasm again. Which is why, uh, typically, for example, dentists suffer tremendously with neck and back problems. I, I get lot lot of dentists coming to me for treatment all right um and and they're continuing in spasm because they're never away from it because they're always hunched over a patient but equally you could say people who work on laptops uh um, and you know people working at home and again like i said after covid we had a huge spike of patients coming in because i think they're working from home they're in their postures are, are, are poor another bugbear of mine i'm afraid um so all of these things Cascade into these kind of problems. So, massage is good; it's good to get relief. But what you need to do is actually do a lot more than that. Botox is very good. Toxin, I should say, botulinum toxin is very good at despasming these muscles. But at the same time, you should have an action plan to try and reset the system. So, I'll give you an example. Talking about the trapezius muscles, what I do with my patients is I get them to reset the system. So, work their core really hard. So, get them to actually not buckle in the midsection. So their core is strong enough so that they can actually hold their posture in a, in a, in a correct fashion, which let's be honest, modern living, most people don't. They they slouch. Mm. That will then cause a problem to the musculoskeletal system. And then obviously your, your brain will know about it uh, or let you know about it via pain. Mm. And so it's about looking at things holistically. That's really where I'm going with this is, you know, understanding that it's not just about putting a plaster on the problem. Let's actually... Think about having a having a long term objective to um, to treatment.
1: Yeah. Do you have a particular toxin that you prefer? I mean, you, you've sort of mentioned Botox a couple of times, but um, obviously there are other providers in the market. Do you find them all equally mm. as effective, or do you have like a go to um, for a particular reason?
2: Yeah. No. I, I. I. If you look at the science, there's really very little difference between, for example, uh, Botox and say Dysport, right? There's very little in the way of, um, you know, efficacy and duration of effect and what have you. Um, so I'm not really fussed. You can give me either of those products. You can give me um, boccature or You can, you know, and some of these Korean toxins are showing quite good promise. The jury's out on that. So we'll, we'll wait and see. I think the most important thing is having a good, clear strategy in terms of techniques and concepts, uh, which involves being very, very, precise in your placement targeting the muscles correctly with the appropriate dose you know so that is the key and so you've got to understand your anatomy to be able to do that and then you've got to also understand the uh, the appropriate dose for each type of patient to actually alleviate the problems
0: so for the non-injectors who you know Probably are doing masseters Can you just tell us, you know, quickly your your technique, how you define the boundaries, and how many dots are you doing? Mm -hmm. What are your standard? Mm -hmm. Sure, it changes, of course, but and what depth as
2: Mm -hmm. well? So when I initially launched my first set of protocols, which I published on in 2003, I looked at uh, up to four injection sites. Okay, Uh, involving predominantly the anterior portion of master. And also the posterior portion, uh, posterior band, if required, depending mm. on how hypertrophic those muscles are. Okay. Um, so the key here is to make sure that you don't inject inadvertently in other muscles. Yeah. And the And the and the key culprit for that could be, say, risorius. There's a muscle that it's quite superficial, runs from the oral commissure. Uh, in a horizontal fashion and lies quite superficial to the master and very easily hit uh, by migration of to your toxin. And that's one of the reasons you can end up with a skewed smile, a restricted smile. So you've got to be careful that you don't inadvertently hit that muscle. Uh, so depth is very important, right? So you've got to be deep on that muscle, uh, almost down to bone. You don't actually want to be on bone, which is also a mistake because you'll be injecting submuscularly and, uh, and that's a wasted injection. You need to make sure you're actually in the fillet of the beef. You yeah. want to be in the actual muscle itself. So, by all means, take your needle down to bone and retract yeah. a good three, four millimeters. All right, that's a very easy thing to do. But it, with with precision, as long as you're injecting six to eight millimeter depth, you should be fine. That'll take you through most people's skin and fat and into the masseter. All right, um, the Other aspect to note is that uh, you need to make sure that you're not too high up on your injection sites because there is an outside chance you could clip zygomaticus major, Mm. which comes in. And so you might clip the lower inferior fibers of zygomaticus major, and that then also will affect the smile, and you get a smile drop on that side. So you've got to, what I do is a very simple thing that I taught many, many years ago is you can draw a line from the tragus right through to the, um, uh, sorry, tragus to the ala. It's, yeah. I'm trying to do this by looking at myself in the mirror. <laughs> All right, ala tragus. And then from that line, you can make sure you're at least two centimeters down from that line to give yourself a margin of, uh, a good wide margin so that you you can uh, obviate the, uh, the any migration that might happen, okay? Yeah. And stay in the center line of the band of muscle, okay? So as long as you're within that line, within on, on that line, two centimeters down from this uh Aida-Tregel line, that will put you in the right ballpark. And then it's very simple to do because all you need to do is look at the maximum contraction of the muscle, all right, so where it's strongest, and you know that X marks the spot there. And then another centimeter down from that is your second side. So it's two sides centrally, and then if required, in only in extreme cases, you can give two other lateral shots. Uh, to from that central line, so lateral and medial to that center line, in in the master itself, and okay. one in the anterior and one in posterior. Okay, so total of four, if required.
0: And translating that into disport, <clears> first <throat> of all, med, Botox. What are your mm. standard doses? You know, many people talk about twenty-five units of Botox per side. I tend A side. to be higher, to be honest. But you know, yeah. I'm interested to see what what you would do
2: yeah so in a mild case so for looking at uh, toxin uh that would be around 60 units per side all right so a mild sort of case mild to moderate would be around 60 per side which would translate to your sort of approximately sort of 25 units i would say uh give or take 20 25 units depending on which. Uh, which equivalent ratio you want to have a look at, right? So that will take you into that part. So that's take your absolute minimum. 25 Botox. Yeah, yeah so it, give or take. Right? So 25 units would be your sort of minimum per side, mm-hmm. okay? Your maximum per side needs to be double that, yeah. right? Per session. And then let me tell you why that is. Uh, particularly in an older person, somebody over sort of 40 years of age, uh, potential for looser skin, particularly around the jowl area, what you don't want to do is be too much of a hero too soon because if you <laughs> shrink those muscles too quickly and you get atrophy, which it does beautifully well, you'll end up not supporting the tissue so well. So therefore, the patient could complain of loose skin around the gel. So the clever thing to do is do it slowly over a few sessions. So maybe do it over minimum two sessions, four to six weeks apart. That way, you give the skin readaptation time. All right, and that's very important because you don't want to then give yourself another problem or your patient another problem. All right, um, so I generally will not give anybody more than uh, 120 units per side. Uh, that would be an extreme case where I've got really a young patient with taut skin with big masters. I'll quite happily give 120 a side, yeah. and that will give me a beautiful result. But if if I feel there's a, any chance of getting a slackening of the skin i would do that over two visits same dose over two visits yeah and right.
0: that translates to about 50 percent yeah
2: and that should give you a decent result initially as long as you target targeted correctly and you're not engaged in the other muscles you can't really you can't miss these muscles they're so easy to inject yeah uh, and that'll work beautifully well but remember jake i must i must while we're there just in case i forget you must palpate at least the temporalis, the anterior bulk, because if there's hypertrophy there and you leave it, you're going to end up recruiting those muscles. You're going to make this area a problem. So if it wasn't a problem before, you're going to give somebody headaches. So you've got to um, inject the temporalis at the same time as you do the masters, if there's evidence of hypertrophy. Okay.
1: Subsequent treatments? Is this something that you do the same sort of dose or approach every time? You know, how long are you leaving between treatment sessions? And is it something that's ongoing forever? Or is this just, you know, a a sort of a, a reset and then you're looking to potentially retrain the way that people are using their facial muscles to adopt better lifestyle habits? Or is it a forever, the rest of your life type of scenario?
2: Well, that's the good news. If you do this well enough, initially for the first year, you might have to see them three times. Okay. Uh, you might need to see them every four months. You may squeeze it to six months, depending on how bad the symptoms are. So, a really bad case of, you know, serious, serious uh, uh, offender of bruxism, uh, you may have to see them three times, minimum to twice a year. But the good news is, if you've backed it up with a proper management plan, like I said to you earlier on, with the occlusion and you know, put a decent splint in there that actually works, you can actually get them back maybe once a year you may eventually kick the habit i never promised that but you may well be out of if you've got the occlusion where it needs to be all right you've minimized the forces of mastication you've broken the habit sufficiently for a uh, for a set period of time the joints are in a happy place and the patient stops doing silly things like chewing gum and hard toffees and bagels and what have you which uh, you know exacerbate the problem then you're in a good place. And so this is what I tell my patients. I said, you, you, you know, don't, don't be surprised if you need to see me twice, two, three times a year. But in time, as long as we get all those factors in the right place, you might only need to see me once a year, if that.
0: Brilliant. Now you mentioned temporalis. That's the next sort of part of the the treatment journey. So a, a lot of injectors, as soon as you mm. stop talking about masseters and you talk about other muscles, they go, oh, I don't know how to do that. <coughs> I've never done that. But mm. it's actually, quite an easy muscle to treat. There's 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 not too much mm. clockwork around there. But you, you know, you mentioned you're generally treating the anterior portion. Again, how many dots do you tend to do? What's your sort of routine dose? and yeah. What might you go up to?
2: so um, you'll need one to two sites in the anterior bulk of the temporalis you can often get away with one and my my tip for that would be hug closer to the uh, brow itself okay a simple tip tip i'll give everybody out there is draw a line from the uh through to the outer canthus of the eye mm-hmm. okay follow that line and then from the actual uh, uh, superior orbital margin, just palpate that, Mm -hmm. and you're looking at around two centimetres along that line, superiorly, pretty much X marks the spot, all right? Give or take. But of course, confirm that by getting the patient to clench, and you might have to just move it slightly. And that's a great place to inject. Just watch out for obvious, uh, you know, uh, branches of the you know, your superficial temporal artery and or vein all right? otherwise you're going to get a nice nasty little hematoma so and again that's really easy to do so that's a great place to inject and then another two to three centimeters up again on that line again could be your second site if you if required um, often don't need to touch the posterior the only time i ever hit the posterior is when i've got tension headaches as well as um, the the, the, uh, bruxism related problems so we're into sort of more tension related plus also migraines which again another topic again so Mm. there may be reasons why i need to inject the posterior temporalis but for argument's sake for um, bruxism sufferers you can pretty much get away with just the temporalis uh, to be treated anteriorly here Uh, and dose wise with dysmorph you're looking at a minimum 20 units per site, okay, which will yeah. translate to your, what, eight? Yeah, eight eight ten, or Eight to yeah. eight, 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 uh, eight Botox, yeah. Okay. So that's the enough. sort of dose you're looking at. They're big muscles. I mean, the other downside of this, obviously you could create atrophy, you'll get temporal hollows. <laughs> so, yeah. you, you know, aesthetically, to be a bit <laughs> of a... Uh, I, <laughs> yeah.
0: I've had my temples treated a few times because I do, I don't know if it's... Uh, headaches through just not drinking enough water. You know, I forget at work mm. and I get busy. Mm. I don't mm. think I grind. I've never been told I do and I don't think I do. But yeah, my temples tend to get sore, but not my masseters. Mm. So I've had them treated a few yeah. times to great effect, but I'm either getting old or I've or I've <coughs> caused hypertrophy, maybe both. Sorry. Yeah. Hy- hi- no, I've not hypertrophy. I've uh, atrophied them.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. As they've as they've hollowed out. Yeah. So you know, again, it's it's that balance, isn't it? What are you treating them for? For function or aesthetics? Yeah. You know. But you can you can achieve a happy medium if you play this right. You can get an acceptable compromise between the two. Yeah. So that you know you can still look good as yeah. well as restoring function. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. I guess like a lot of injectors might be thinking, great. Well, I've got all these patients I've treated with masseters. You've just alerted me to, you know. You know, the potential complexities and, and side effects of these types of aesthetic based treatments. Cause I guess we're talking about two things that you said, sort of function and form. So for all the people that are out there treating their clients for aesthetic reasons, you know, what would be the questions that you would uh, want them to ask themselves or the things I mean, kind of alluded to a little bit, but I guess just sort of wrap it up in a, mm. a nice little piece of advice in terms of what they should do, because, uh, you know, people don't want to be doing treatments that are going to be harming their patients. Um, but mm. they might not be aware that they are. So what would your advice be to those people?
2: So in summary, like we said, we, we have mentioned this before. I think the key is conduct a, a good comprehensive examination, number one, all right? and also take a really good sound history. Actually, a lot of the clues are in the history. All right? So when you find out what the patient does during the day, you know, like you said, partner, for example, yep. big clue. Partner may be the first person who, who uh, heralds uh, or identifies the fact that the, the you know the, uh, the particular patient is actually grinding or clenching their teeth because mm-hmm. they often hear it, yep. and, and interestingly, you, you know, and you know, I hope this is not a family show, but if it is, it's it's, it's not too bad. But do you know? Do you know? There's a lot of evidence to suggest that when you're having sex, that's a great time to clench and grind your teeth. <laughs> at the, at nice. the moment, at the moment of orgasm, <laughs> your teeth will be together. Wow. I guarantee.
0: Make, makes it a little bit better, doesn't it? I,
2: I, was, I, w- I was just about to say, try orgasming with a, with your teeth apart.
0: I'm going to try and swallow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a, that's another you go, topic I could go so many areas with that you last follow, comment, but I like when, when you bring you, your teeth together. <laughs> exactly. So seriously, So the point I'm saying is that often partners, I've heard, yeah partners come to me patients say to me my my partner said this about me during sex right so you know you know that, that could be the first time that somebody identifies that you're actually a grinder or clencher right. right and so it's, it's often not the dentist unless the dentist happens to be the partner yeah all right there you go but um mm. there you go
1: and then and then i guess you know if they do have questions as you said identify mm. a dentist so they can send them to for you know an examination make sure that you know they're in agreement with the treatment uh, process and protocols
2: Exactly, and 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 don't be scared to look inside the mouth. Look inside the mouth for any obvious signs of uh, wear and tear and signs of bruxism, and that's a great thing to do. You know, and don't be surprised if the uh, patient says, "Well, my dentist hasn't said anything," and they often do. They say to my dentist, "says I'm fine." Yeah, Uh, and that 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 can often happen. You know, Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. Think beyond just um, the masters. Oh my word! When I, it's sometimes one of the big bugbears I have in conference programs is they'll have a lecture title, "Master to Botox." So like, geez, <laughs> that's like saying um, right ventricle uh, lecture, or, or, or you know, yeah, or, or sort of lower left liver. I mean, it's it's like really. I mean you you you've got to think of the bigger picture and have an action plan and think about healing that patient holistically. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that's the message I mean, we didn't even really get into the pterygoids, but you know, obviously these are muscles that I inject also um as part of uh the makeup of that patient, depending on the symptoms, you know?
0: I was just gonna get onto that. We did have some listener questions and I mean mm. Pretty much answered all of them but yeah let us just sort of end on on the pterygoids because they're sort of a bit of a mm-hmm. myth even to to you know some people who might know a little bit of mm-hmm. anatomy. Um I don't want to obviously teach people how to do quite complicated no. and potentially dangerous injections through a podcast but you know just broadly like where do you find where, where do you palpate these muscles and you know and what might you yeah. sort of you know a, a loose approach but we're not going to teach anyone here.
2: Yeah so by no means is this a manual to be able to inject these things but I'll, I'll answer your question very very simply um if you draw a line from your ala to the tragus again
3: mm-hmm. all right
2: so i love my ala tragal line and if you take from the mid tragus okay and run anteriorly by approximately three centimeters yeah okay in an average adult you'll find that your finger will actually dip as long as you're underneath the zygomatic arch. Yeah. your finger will naturally dip into an area known as the sigmoid fossa. And that's the area between the condy- condyle and the coronoid process. Mm-hmm. Okay? If that makes sense. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for this open window. All right? So you can actually palpate and you can do it on yourself and you'll actually be able to sink in. All right? That's where you want to inject. My and left under. <laughs> If you yeah, and it, you will actually if you press hard enough, it will be tender on somebody who who um, is a, a clencher, but generally a grinder. So those will be tender on a grinder. Right. Those pterygoids will be tender if you're a grinder. Whereas masseters and temporalis, they're clencher, uh, they're clencher territory. So clenchers will have masseteric and temporalis, TTP. Yeah. Whereas pterygoids are generally people who do the. Do, the, do the, the lateral movements uh, and have interferences and what have you. Yeah. So, that's a great place to inject extraorally. You can do it intraorally, but it's a blind procedure. And uh, even if you're a dentist, it's a lot easier to do outside of the mouth.
0: Do you have to be worried about any of the uh, carotid system mm. in here?
2: Here, no. Uh, you won't hit any of the carotid. You could, if you inject too deep, you could hit the pterygoid venous plexus. Yeah, but you'd have to be going some. So as long as you you, you inject, uh, your depth will be around fifteen millimeters.
3: Okay.
2: Um, you'll be you'll hit that outer head. You're yeah. only going for the outer head on this one. You're not trying to hit the inner head. Yeah. Um, you're only trying to despasm the muscle slightly. You're not trying to immobilize this muscle because then you've got a problem. Yeah. You're not opening your mouth, all right <laughs> So you're not trying to be so clever So you're leaving most of the ability intact, uh, intact uh, for the muscles to work correctly. So you're just quieting down. Uh, and and the same is true in the masters. And one of the things we didn't talk about is if you over, keep jabbing those masters a lot, again and again and again, there is a potential to get osteopenia, yeah. and that's where where you get actually resorption of the uh, mandibles um, because of atrophy. So again, another problem just cited there for overuses over chasing the aesthetics trying to get somebody so slim and then doing it every three four months repeatedly for the rest of their life eventually you're going to cause them a problem and there's lots of studies to back that up so you've got to be careful that you don't overdo it so they still chew and you get an acceptable compromise between the two things yeah
0: what dose are you standardly using for your lateral pterygoid
2: 10 to 20 Dysport. dysport. So four So to, four to ten, four to eight Botox.
0: Okay. And now this is like the last muscle is the medial pterygoid. I've seen your interesting technique where you, you bend the needle and you sort of go around the corner of the jaw. We're definitely not going to teach anyone how to do that. <laughs> but how, how routinely do you treat that one?
2: That's probably my rarest muscle that I treat because most of the time the symptoms are emanate from masters temporalis and possibly pterygoids, mm. uh, lateral pterygoids. Medial pterygoid, it's very easy to find out whether that's in spasm because if you rasp your finger underneath the mandible like this on somebody who grinds, they will oft- they will hate you for doing that. They'll right. they'll, they'll move away from your finger. And, uh, yeah, so if you're a grinder, you've got to get right in underneath and you're almost going to the inner aspect of the, the mandible, okay? Okay. Um, and, as you said, my technique for this is to actually bend almost at right angles the the, the needle and then hook it underneath so that the needle is actually coming out this way yeah. right and so that you're always on bone because the danger is if you go straight, you could potentially hit the lingual artery yeah. um, and that's that's not a good day at the office <laughs> uh, if you don't hit the, if you don't if you don't hit the lingual artery that you could you could hit. Glandular tissue, for example, this is uh, obviously the sublingual uh, gland, sub, well, submandibular gland as well, depending on where you are in this region. So you don't really want to do this without bending the needle. So you'll make sure you're always on bone. But again, know how to do it first. Maybe do it on cadavers first before you actually take it live on patients.
0: Actually, I've got one more question. It was my own personal question. You just reminded me. <laughs> do you ever treat the parotid or the submandibular glands with toxin to just reduce their bulk. You know, some people have just got quite big Yeah.
2: yeah so, it, yeah, absolutely, and it's a great treatment. But again, you've got to also um, marry up the the functionality of the parotid gland, which is of course uh, producing saliva. And yeah. there is a there is a condition called Frey syndrome where they actually get uh, um, gustatory sweating um, at times of eating. They actually get um, you know, produce a, a lot of saliva as well. So. There's a good indication of uh, treating the parotid in that respect. Very easily done, really easy. You can use microtox units and scatter it around the the uh, the um, uh, parotid, but make sure that your injections do not inadvertently hit any of the uh, mimetic muscles, any of the smile muscles. Otherwise, uh, again, that could destroy destroy the smile. All right, but yeah, uh, that's a that's a great use for debulking the uh, parotids. But again, don't overdo it because obviously you need you you need these big glands to actually function otherwise you're going to get drying out of the mouth right
1: yeah well you've given us a ton of information and i'm sure people have got hundreds more questions um can you tell us all about the training that you do? The opportunities people might have to get involved and, and learn from you, and sort of get a, a more in-depth, um, you know, version of what we've just spoken about now, which I guess is quite a superficial level, but a great introduction nonetheless. Mm. And um, you know, what what's what are your plans looking like for 2022 in terms of, of
2: training? Sure, yeah. So happily talk about my training issue. I mean, I essentially, like I said, we've been in existence for over two decades. So it's known as the Dr. Bob Carner Training Institute, and I have subsidiaries all over the UK and around the world, so in various locations. Uh, and essentially, uh, very easy to find, uh, if you go onto Dr. Bob Carner Training Institute or even drbobcarner.com, uh, you'll get, get every bit of information you, you need for every single course that I ever do from all aspects of facial aesthetics. So I teach all aspects of facial sculpting, uh, all aspects of toxin and fillers that are possible, thread lifting, PRP, radio uh, frequency, microneedling, and mesotherapy. And of course, cadaver uh, courses that I run, in-depth cadaver courses that I run. Um, and also, we. You, you asked about what we're introducing in 2022. We're going to have a whole section on body contouring, which is the next level of body contour, which is the the next sort of spectrum of uh, treatments that really people are are, are dying to get really yeah. get on top of and there's some great technologies i have to tell you the great technologies i'm not talking just about say fat freezing or cool sculpting that sort of stuff there's there's things a lot lot uh more, um uh specific for body contour muscle toning fat reduction treatments and what have you so watch this space Absolutely. and uh definitely hope to get back to Australia. It's been, a, I've, I've made a few trips out there to, to, to lecture, but it would be lovely to come back out and, um, come and do some courses and do, do some lecturing out there at the conferences. Yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, actually, you, d- you did uh, take a small part <coughs> in Stephen Liu's, uh, lip show, didn't you? I mm-hmm. remember you did a little yeah. there on your BK codes. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So I've known Stephen Liu for a long, long time. And uh, we've lectured many times together all around the world. And, uh, yeah, it been. A, it was a pleasure to actually for him to ask me to uh, uh, showcase some of my uh, newer techniques for lip modification work uh, alongside prophyloplasty. This is one of the things that uh, I've been quite um, um, innovative about, uh, restoring the three dimensions. And so, yeah, it was, it was great, but I'd love to come to Australia again. I'm I'd, I'd yeah. dying to come back to your lovely country and, and actually do some actual face-to-face stuff for a change. I mean, it's great doing this virtual stuff, but there's nothing better than actually yeah. Yeah. Um, being eye to eye with the audience, you know, and I'm yeah. very much uh, that kind of person that I, I feed off the audience and love to teach. It's a great right. passion for me and no question is ever stupid. I oh, love to teach and I can share challenge my knowledge
1: <laughs> <laughs> course, yeah. so you, you <laughs> but we'd have to. We'd love to um, when you're out
0: here, we'd love to catch up for a dinner. Dinner, go for yeah. a beer. It'd be great. Are you going to go to Paris to MWC? I'm going to come, so maybe we can catch up there.
2: Yeah, I'll be in Paris and Monaco. I hope to see you in Monaco in April.
1: No,
0: i I'll, I'll in Dubai, um, sadly on a family holiday, but I'm definitely going to sadly, Paris.
1: Sadly, on a family holiday is that what this is coming. I'm going to AMWC family. as well, but you know. <laughs> Family sure, first. Yeah. Absolutely. I
2: will, I'll, I'll be, I'll be lecturing in Paris as well. So I look forward to seeing you. Yeah. Right, anybody out on, there. And, me, you on. and I must say, if anybody's out there listening in, you, I'm very easily contactable. You could go on my Instagram handle, Bob Carner. Um, very easy to find. And if you got any questions after this, uh, podcast and feel free to DM me and I'll do my level best to actually get back to you. But, um, you know, yeah, it has been a pleasure actually, uh, talking to you guys and sharing my knowledge and it's uh, coming up to midnight here.
3: Yeah. I'm still, <laughs>
2: I'm still, I'm still energized. i still, I'm still not, uh, that's a good sign, I suppose. Yes. Uh, you know, after all these years, I can talk about these things and talk the hind legs off a donkey. Probably bored everyone to death out there, but, um, not at all. have got, got the, but hopefully
0: I haven't made him brunt <laughs> yeah yeah you no we, we truly appreciate your time I know it's late so thank you again Bob we'll put all your details at the bottom of the podcast everyone can refer back to those and get in touch and uh, yeah we wish you well and I'll see you in, in Paris for a Negroni
2: look forward to it buddy you take <laughs> care Jake take <laughs> all right, care David you all the way you, properly. thank you bye Cheers. Take bye. Care. Bye. Bye. bye now
0: For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your
3: love and support us on Patreon.